You're listening to Captured and Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And on this occasion, we are going to be talking about director Damien Chazelle. I'm not going to say and particularly his TV series, because calling it his TV series may be inaccurate, but there is a Netflix series called The Eddie, which Damien Chazelle directed the first two episodes of. We came into this episode with the full intention of talking quite a bit about it, but I don't know if we will, and we'll get into all the reasons why on that very shortly. Andrew, hello. That was That's not how intros are supposed to work, but I feel like the premise that we set up for this episode is ultimately going to prove to be a little bit misleading. I think so, and that's probably because we didn't do enough Googling after this idea came into our brains. I think last week it was a little easier, because even though... Normal People was is Sally Rooney's creation and is really her voice. Lenny Abramson, it was a huge part of that, directing six episodes, and I, he was had an executive producer credit, I believe, as well. But he was really involved with the entire process, and as we'll get to see with the Eddie, not quite the same case with Damien Chazelle. Yeah, and there's, there's some specific elements of that that I think we'll dive into in detail. I mean, I'll be honest straight off the bat, it's not like me not to do the homework, but I only watched Chazelle's episodes in the first 10 minutes of the third episode, because, yeah, this this show is not for me, I don't know who this show is for, I don't think it's very good, and I think it feeds into some of the kind of interesting dynamics we were talking about last week, in terms of what happens when someone who mostly makes movies comes across the tv and what are the factors that can lead something being good or something being bad that they make and i think we focused in on a lot of the the positive and how that works out and kind of understanding the differences in film and television as mediums last week i think we're going to come in on the other side with this week not necessarily as a knock on chiselle i don't know maybe because it wasn't his project in the way that you've already kind of alluded to, he just didn't really have the same interest in making it kind of one coherent thing and kind of shaping the whole story so that it's set up for the other directors who come in. I don't know. We'll get into all of that, but we are going to have a more general conversation about Chazelle. We're going to probably spend more time talking about his movies, which are considerably better. And I think the reason in the first place that, I did, like last week when we talked about normal people, part of that was the show itself leading it and it being something that was getting a lot of attention that we both really liked, that the novel it was adapted on had been a sensation. This is the opposite because we were really, we were checking this out because of the person involved, because of the, the director of the first two episodes, because of Chazelle. And I think that is indicative of why this exists because... He's a really, really interesting director. One of the more interesting Hollywood directors, and I know certainly one of your favorites. So a more general discussion about him is seems warranted. And I guess to start again into it, it's pretty disappointing that we're we're centering this around, even if we move on quickly around the TV show that is mediocre to say the least. Yeah, I we'll get into it in a little bit, but I wouldn't wouldn't call it bad per se after having seen the entire thing in terms of Chazelle in general I'll agree with everything you're saying I know I know you have a great deal of respect for him but for me he might be one of my top five working directors I think there are two guys that stand out into my mind where you say this person's coming out with this 
specific project and I, I get really excited and that's Damien Chazelle and it's Denis Villeneuve. So obviously I, I hold him in quite high esteem and we'll see anything he's involved with. I mean, Adam, if I were making a a top 20 movies of the decade, you know, not based on year, but just in general for 2010 to, to 2019, it would be a high likelihood that three of the four movies we'll discuss will make it. I would have to be disingenuous and put limits on how many films a director can have on my list to to really make that happen where they don't all up, all end up on there. I mean, I just love his movies and I think he gets better in different ways with with each movie he's made so far. So I was very disappointed that the the coronavirus situation has put a delay on his his next project which is Babylon. Uh, but yeah, I love Damien Chazelle and it's definitely worth it more to discuss his movies than it is to discuss the Eddie. But, uh, and like I said, that's really just because it, it's not his project, quote unquote. I mean, for me, not to say that he's at his best when he's doing this, but I, I think I enjoy his work the most when it's got that true auteurist vision where it's his idea, his screenplay, and it's really a collaboration between him and Justin Hurwitz where I think it, it speaks to me the most. And the Yeti is just not that. I think there's someone even more important to Justin Hurwitz in terms of that. And I'll get into that. And I actually think the Yeti has made me think about him as a director and make me think about the auteurist kind of way that we talk about directors, particularly, you know, on something like this podcast that we always frame it. And part of that is always, you know, it's convenient. You know, if you want to categorize things, you want to group things together for conversation it's easy to say this is the director let's consider these things but to me there are two other key elements in particular getting close to being tree um and kind of commonalities and key recurring collaborators in Chazelle's work that through their absence from the Eddie, I was like okay this just doesn't feel like Chazelle's work uh, which is interesting in its own right I guess we'll get into some of that in a little bit but let's let's start out with the Eddie, and I guess the what it is overall. Um, we'll get into the actual plot specifics of it in a moment, but this is just a pretty weird project. A pretty weird kind of feels like one of the patched together Netflix projects that multiple of them now exist. Where it's like we can uh, we can kill two birds with one stone here, and we can have this show that's going to appeal to this country and this country and hopefully have crossover appeal beyond that. I mean, it's bilingual, it's set in France with notable American actors, a notable American, well, yeah, two notable American actors, a notable American director attached to the first two episodes, yet the opening credits, uh, I believe, have like, well, credits is maybe overselling it, but they, they have like the directed by credit is in French. So... This is one of these distinctly, you know, Netflix global kind of projects, which in their own right, it's a very kind of, it's a very fine line you're trying to walk when you're trying to get something that, oh, this feels French and this feels American, or this just feels like it could be anything. That's tough. And it can kind of, it can kind of take you out of a sense of place. I don't know if it struck you just how often characters in this show are having conversations where one person is speaking english the other is speaking french yeah did you notice this i I did notice this and 
I wanted to have a, a French person in my life to ask this, or even someone that English is not their first language, and I wanted to say, does this happen to you? Are you frequently having conversations in one language and then bouncing to another? It's so unlikely, because it's even, it's not just on the one side, like you're thinking there, it's on both sides. You need, you know, <laughs> the English-speaking person needs enough French for that to work, and vice versa, and if you've got enough of one, let's just, you know, let's just speak the one language. Yeah, because it it's not even that they were doing it for the American character's convenience, because that's that's something that I think would be believable, believable but Andre Holland will walk into a room, and this continues through episode eight, speaking French, and then one of them will just downshift into English, and it's like, well, well, what was the, why did that happen? <laughs> it's a little confusing, and it does take you out of it a little bit. Yeah, I guess... I'll say I think one of the areas where this show succeeds is in the atmosphere and kind of the vibe. I mean, it's the from a filmmaking perspective and strictly speaking with the camera, I kind of like what it's doing and the the kind of techniques that Chazelle's using in episodes one and two continues throughout the rest of the series where you've got a lot of handheld shots um, through city streets or in a jazz club with tight shots on on a band as they go through a number with the with a crowded bar that's where i think it succeeds but it is in in the character relationships and the plot specifically as it moves forward is where it falls apart i mean the best part of this the show is the setting and that it dialogue aside it makes you feel like you're in a very specific place and it's a place that i wanted to want to be in but as things progress it just it just lost me i have to disagree on almost all of that except for the parts where you say it's not the characters that hook you in because the characters weren't really doing anything for me but I don't like what this show is visually at all I, I don't see the point in it so Chazelle shoots this 16mm handheld and I mean extremely handheld unlike anything else he's ever done it's not unusual for him to shoot on film it's not even unusual film we'll talk about later Guy and Madeline on Park Bench is his first movie is shot 16mm, largely handheld, but not this kind of rough and ready. Like, the parts of the first episode, you almost feel like you're watching something Paul Greengrass and how handheld the camera is. And I can only try and parse out, you know, what is the intention behind that? It's to kind of reel with the 16mm and you're getting this, this great grain on the image and then it's so kind of loose and handheld. It's To me, it's pouring on a bit too much of okay this is a gritty version of paris and this is this is a story about jazz so we want the camera to be very you know free and moving throughout i think the very first scene if i'm remembering correctly of the show is like this constant motion shot throughout the club which he's actually he's done versions of that shot in other projects he's done them a lot better but i i didn't honestly find that the I guess the visual choices of the show made a whole lot of sense. And I was curious about this from very early on. When I was, when I was watching the first episode, I found myself going to the IMDb page and the technical aspects and being like, okay, what was this shot on and where does this go? And I was struck by the mix of film and digital that's there. We are called Captured in Celluloid after all, Andrew. It's about time that we talk about this, right? But there's a mix of film and digital. And I was like, hmm, okay. So Chazelle shoots his on 16mm handheld. 
And I'll admit, the only reason I watched even the first 10 minutes of the third episode was I wanted to find out, does it just stop being shot on film when Chazelle's gone? Was Chazelle like, I, oh, I'll only do this if I could shoot on film. And then they went, well, that's too expensive for everything else, though, so we'll change it. And it's actually so jarring because episode three opens, not just with a shot that's digital, but with a shot that's filmed vertically on a phone. We get about two minutes of like a party scene, pretty weird scene, but it's shot vertically on the phone. So we'll say 85% of, you know, your laptop, your TV, whatever device you're watching on is black. And then it goes into footage, which to my eye and from anything I've read was very clearly shot digitally. So there's not even any coherence in what this show is visually. Giselle was doing one thing and then it seems like the show didn't really continue on with that. And I guess this feeds into something which I found interesting when early reviews came out or not even when reviews. I think when screeners started to land for uh, critics around the world, start to see this kind of buzz of there's something really weird here and what this was is there was no created body credit on this show up until like a week before it hit netflix and netflix's original kind of blasts to the media and outlines of what this project was there was no created body credit and i think a lot of people for a long time had assumed oh this was chazelle's show chazelle was central to the concept being jazz being set in paris this is all like you know we're checking off the boxes of what would seem like a project if you gave damien chazelle a blank check what's he going to go and do like in theory you would think the general idea of this or at least maybe what we thought it was before seeing it would seem to fit that mark and yet eventually uh, created by credit does land on it and it goes to jack torn who is a British writer, relatively, you know, accomplished writer, I guess best known for things like Shameless and Skins, has built a very steady career for himself. And I I just, watching this, I don't know whose it is, what it is, what it's supposed to do. I found it pretty tedious, to say the least. And it just, it came with this just kind of wider sense of incoherence, or I'm not sure, I'm not sure what's going on. Now, I say this knowing I'm coming from a somewhat indefensible position as I didn't finish it, because someone who likes this listing could say, yeah, but if you watch, you'll, you know, you'll find that and that and that. And that's probably true. But my response to that would be, I'm not wasting time watching this. <laughs> like, Giselle's first two episodes, Andrew, both 69 minutes long. So you've literally his longest film was First Man. And you've matched the running time almost exactly a first man. Uh, I guess you've even run over it, um, excluding credits, by the time you've watched the first two episodes. And what have you learned? What What is happening? What is this story? Are we even really like planted in a world that we understand? I think it wants to be set in multiple worlds. It wants to do multiple different things. Who are the characters? Um, I know uh, you have told me, and I know from what I've read, I mean, other characters get their time to shine later on as it progresses, and some of them are more interesting, but, like, why are they just not there or not getting any attention early on? This is a very strange project, and to me, it's it's the complete inverse of what we talked about last week. It is the kind of the nightmare scenario where you bring a a movie director in and they have their vision for something and it goes a certain way. And then I think there's an entirely different vision for this that everyone else has. 
the fact that Chazelle's two episodes are like 12 minutes longer each than any other episode that any other director got in the series, the fact that they look different, like what does that ultimately achieve in terms of making this something that as a whole, as a series works? I'm, I find that very off-putting, very jarring, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, it concerns me about these sort of projects. It's all well and good Netflix giving, you know, top-class filmmakers freedom to go and make something or to go and do whatever they want with it, but I don't like the idea of, oh, let's attach big names to get people watching this and have it kind of be entirely different things, like have the director see it as one thing who comes in to open it up, and then have all of these other directors come in and finish it off as something entirely different. I just find that whole dynamic to be really weird. And to me, it wasn't it wasn't at all beneficial in terms of the viewing experience. It wasn't laying any groundwork. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to keep watching this, because I don't care about the characters, and I don't care about the story. Yeah, I will say, as it as it does progress, that inconsistency remains consistent. And so you'll find a wild swing in quality from episode to episode. And again, for me, it is based on which character am I interested in. The bass player, Jude, his episode uh, where he runs into a former girlfriend who's getting married and he kind of goes off on a little adventure with them and then depression and drug addiction and all that kind of stuff gets pulled into play. I thought that episode was really interesting. I think... Uh, the character that I was drawn to most was Maya, who was played by, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Joanna. It's an easy one. Go on. Kulig? Yeah, an easy one. Joanna Kulig. Yeah, you never know with me. Who, have you uh, seen Cold War? I've not. Something that you have Ugh. told me to see many times, but... Adam, We're right back at this. I can't believe it. Adam, in my research, I've noticed that it is now on Amazon Prime, though. So it, it, it should be something that... I say I'm going to get to and not, but nevertheless. No, no, you should you should do it after after we finish recording, because this is I'll I'll come in just with this brief note. I'll let you get back to finish your point now. But as like my maybe my biggest problem with this is if I'm going to watch Joanna Kulig singing in a Parisian jazz club, I want to watch Cold War because it's an incredible movie, one of the best movies of the last. Five ten years, her performance in that is mind-blowingly good, and the music is a lot better than anything I heard here. And you know what? It's like seventy minutes long in total, maybe eighty minutes. I could watch it in just about the length of one of these Damien Chazelle episodes. It's kind of incredible. I mean, in one in one regard, the casting here is really good, like Andre Holland, Joanna Kulig, uh, Tahar Rahim, Amanda Stenberg, even is kind of interesting as an up-and-coming actress and a lot of people think she's going to be like a really big deal i'm not sure if this role is doing her any great favors on that front it's kind of an interesting role to take i think at this point in her career but there's a lot of things to like about that cast i just think the problem is like deciding oh we've got joanna kulik who did this thing so well in cold war let's make her be a jazz singer in a Parisian club again and that's kind of a bold choice. You'll understand when you when you watch Cold War, which you're going to do like immediately after we finish recording. I, I make a vow to do it sometime in the next 24 hours. I, I feel like that's a good compromise. That's a, I'll, I'll accept that. Perfect. So I, I like this more than you did, Adam, mainly because I feel like anyone that's working on any of these shows has so much more talent than I do, so I feel bad about criticizing them. But I will say that the inconsistencies along the ride 
and the fact that they don't exactly stick to landing are more my big issues. Because, like I said, some of these intimate character studies we get on individual episodes are good. Uh, in particular, Maya, Jude, and then uh, the character Amira. I'm not going to try to pronounce uh, that actress's name, but but she's Layla the, Bechti. Layla Bechti. So that was easier than it looked like it was going to be. She's she's really good. Overall, it's just inconsistent, and I think that what you spoke to about its creation and sort of all the hands that were involved with it, the uh, too many cooks situation. Adam, in this project, in watching this and Whiplash and La La Land, I think I've determined that I am a jazz guy now, TM. So the the jazz scenes, as they get sprinkled out throughout the rest of the series, were probably my favorite part. As a whole, anytime we spent time with the jazz band who's trying to achieve their dreams and and make it out of this dingy Parisian nightclub, I was all in. Set against the primary plot, which is sort of as a whodunit crime thriller, that's where I was out. If you want to make an eight-episode show about a jazz band uh, that's like a better version of Begin Again with professional musicians, then I'm all in on that. But what they did here, mixing in the crime element, just, just not for me. But... I mean, it's quarantine time. If you've got eight hours to kill, throw it on. No, don't. <laughs> this is this is my. I, I'm. Not, this isn't really about this show either. I think this is capturing something that I was trying to kind of work through last week and express. I think now we've just kind of got what I feel like is a perfect example. Like we we have endless options of stuff to watch. It just goes on. Like there, there are a hundred TV series I could watch that I have never got round to, and. As I've mentioned before, I always feel it's a commitment because you've just, as you said, you've got if you've got eight hours to kill, it's like the amount of movies are, you know, I could spend eight hours reading a book. I could the amount of things, even when you're locked in your home, as many people around the world still are, you could do in eight hours. You know, it's a pretty rich and varied thing. You could get a lot of enjoyment out of doing different things in that time. So if something is inconsistent, it's got to be really compelling. It's got to really zig along. It's got to grab you and be like, okay, it doesn't quite work, but I'm there. You know, I'm I'm here for the journey. I'm prepared to give this a chance to see what it is. Like, this is not compelling at all. And it drags. And that is Giselle's fault. Or if not his fault, I mean, the fault on, you know, editing. I, I just don't know. Did they, did they somewhat leave his work untouched? It's rare to talk about editing in movies in a, you know, let's actually just cut some stuff out way. It's not really, I think it's generally what people think of with editing, but it's, it's just not what film editing is about. What we talk about, you know, a film that's really well edited or poorly edited. It's something that often I think is a terrible critique that people level at a movie. That's too long. They feel like, or just that's long in general is, Oh, it, it came out around the time of the Irishman. You had lots of people weighing in. Oh, the editing. No, the editing in the Irishman is phenomenal. I think this is a, a case, though, where actual editing, just for concision, more than anything else, not in terms of the stitching together of the episodes, but in terms of what what are we telling here and making sure, okay, we're giving a, a punchy introduction, particularly, I mean, this is what you've got to do. This is why pilots used to exist in the pre-streaming world of TV for so long, because you had to grab an audience, because if you don't, they're not watching again. As on Netflix of all services, I just don't think there can be an assumption that it's like, oh, you, you know, some episodes are good, others are bad. If you stick with it, maybe you'll like some of them. 
oh, I'm out. Like that's I, I intended to watch all of this and then I when I was started watching I was like, I'm not watching all this. Part of me thinks this was just like a a sick joke to play on me and that I was really proactive and, and just zoomed through this with a with a productivity that we haven't seen from me before and Adam was like this is how I'm going to get him back for not seeing all those movies I recommend and if that was what it was Adam that's brilliant that's evil genius level brilliant but you you like this somewhat I mean you don't dislike it certainly like I do but I mean I I, I couldn't say to someone you know oh, you know it's this isn't the case of if you've got nothing better to do put it on because I don't I don't feel like it earns that. It doesn't earn that through two hours and 20 minutes. Two hours, 30 minutes. I watched 10 episodes of the third episode. If you're not earning something in that time, there is nothing on this planet that is worth two and a half hours before anything happens, before you care remotely at all. Like, there is no no entertainment. There's no anything. You've got to get to something. You've got to be intrigued. And I don't know there's a whole lot there. Because... Maybe you can maybe you can point me to something. Or you, there's a reason why you felt different on that. But like through that point, so through the first two episodes, through Chazelle's block of this series, and there are four directors in total who work on it. What is what is where are we? What is the story? There is none. Even at that point, still, like this is an eight episode miniseries, and we're not really getting a chance to kind of kind of just rest her characters and witness the shape of their arc starting to unfold because we are having what are almost like these POV style episodes. And I think that may be what really holds it back or part of it. Well, because if you're going to do that, if you're going to do an ensemble show, it's the same applies if it's an ensemble movie. Someone like Robert Altman, who was the master of this, like that's fine. You can do that. And there are actually TV series that do that brilliantly. You and I love Lost, right? We love Lost. Lost does this every episode. You know, you do have a primary character. It doesn't mean that you're not going to see others. It doesn't mean the overall story is not going to progress because that is literally essential. You know, you can have two episodes where one is one character's episode, the other is the other's. But by the end of the second, we need to have a clear idea of what's going on, of as in what we're progressing to, particularly when it's like more. It's like 30% of the entire series is over at that point. We're past the first act. We need a turning point, and there's nothing. There is none. Really what it comes down to, Adam, is I believe Maya can be a star. And if Frank Levy will just give them a recording deal, it's going to send them to the next level. But Adam, as you're saying, the Eddie might not be worth it just because of all those reasons. But you know what? You know what could be worth your time in quarantine? Go on. I'm listening. Binge watching Damien Chazelle's four other movies, or actual movies. Yeah, his movies are good. Uh, what more can we say? His movies are good. Let's let's take that seg and let's cross over into them. We'll start back in 2009 with his feature directorial debut, which is Guy Madeline on a Park Bench. This is a movie I hadn't seen before because it is incredibly difficult to find. Not so difficult in the US, but globally very difficult. I managed to find it. We won't talk more about that. And it's very well made. It's very charming. The background to this movie is he started um, during his time in Harvard. It was going to be his thesis movie in Harvard. And he dropped out at least uh, temporarily to kind of expand it and to make it into what it became. Um, You mentioned Justin Hurwitz, who is his composer, who has worked with him in every movie he's made. And 
this is their first collaboration together. They met in college. And I will say I had known about this as a musical. It is less of a musical than I had anticipated. And I think certainly around the time of La La Land, it was played up. Oh, his first movie is this, you know, little black and white musical um, shot in a super low budget, really kind of French New Wave inspired. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Not really what this is. Like, there are songs, but I think it's a stretch to call it a musical. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's almost like a, a breakup movie that thinks it's a musical at random times. But the, the, the musical interludes, we'll call them, always feel appropriate, weirdly enough. But it, I, strictly calling it a musical, I think, would be incorrect. They feel detached. Uh, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean... It's not jarring when it breaks into, in spite of the realism. It does feel like an interlude. I think that's a very good way to describe it because it doesn't feel like the kind of break from reality you often get in a musical. And it should be even more kind of just... It should really take you out of it here because it is so kind of gritty and so kind of low budget and run and gun as a movie. The look of it, and that's, again, not to disparage it, it's really... I mean, there's some things he does here, which I don't know if he ever really does again. Like, it's it's very much a first feature I mentioned to you. And then reading after the fact, I found out, oh, I I obviously wasn't the only person to pick up on this. Anyone who's familiar with the movies of John Cassavetes, uh, anyone who's seen, like, Shadows, I think in particular, Faces somewhat too. Like, you'd watch this and you're just like, what? This is just like a Cassavetes movie. This is weird, like, just how much this is indebted to Cassavetes. And there is certainly a sense there of, I guess, young Damien Chazelle is probably like, okay, what do I like? I like musicals. I like MJ musicals and I like Cassavetes. And I'm going to put those things together with a kind of a rush of new wave spirit in there too. And this is my movie. And I think he succeeds on getting elements of all of that into it. Uh, I think this is a pretty solid movie. I don't love it. I'm not going to rush to watch it again. I don't know if I'll be rewatching it over and over over the years, but I do think it certainly points to, you know, what he becomes. He doesn't just direct this movie. It's worth pointing out. He is a cinematographer. He co-edits it as well. Like this is a very much, you know, one man cinema at its most pure. And it is immensely impressive for something that, you know, coming straight out of college, being in college really. And um, when this was initially, begun that this is what he made so i have a lot of time for that and it's very impressive i think it does signal the talent he has i think it's interesting when we get on to his next movie like not a big budget movie but a big step up from this and in one regard you don't see many filmmakers jump from a movie on this scale to a movie on that scale and a movie with name actors on the other i do think i am adeline on a park bench it shows us enough of what Chazelle has got to be able to understand why people believe in him, why funding uh, was available to him as his career went on. Yeah, having seen this um, after I'd seen all the, his other movies, it's interesting, like you said, you see little hints in Guy and Madeline that would come up later in his movies. I, there's a scene in Guy and Madeline uh, in a jazz club type of thing with a kind of a dude in a ponytail doing like a little tap dance routine where a guy is is playing trumpet and there's a back and forth nature to that scene that's uh 
similar to some things that we'll talk about later in Whiplash. So it's it's interesting to see like where the genesis for some of his stylistic flourishes came from. And then also more specifically, we, we get um, a portion of the score in Guy and Madeline literally is in the summer montage sequence of La La Land. So it's interesting to see it after the fact and, and see where he started and kind of how he developed as he really learned how to make movies. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's got the the thing I find interesting in trying to think of it as, you know, what does a Chazelle movie look like? What do I associate him with versus what's in here? There's a lot that just doesn't compute. And then there's, you know, the close-ups. He's, this is, you know, really heavy reliant on really big close-ups. Like, close-ups like you rarely, rarely see in film beyond kind of, you know, micro-budget independent filmmaking. The kind of extreme close-ups that are a little bit bold and would be very, very sparingly used in Hollywood movies, if at all. And I would have, before his most recent movie, have said that's not something he does and it's something he essentially just kind of moved out of almost altogether. And yet, when First Man comes around, you can see that same kind of eye and sensibility come back. And that in its own right does suggest, you know, okay, he has got a sense of when is the right time? What is the right movie to break this particular tool out? Which I, I think he kind of nails across his career, with the exception of the Eddie, which is in part why the Eddie's look and style, I think, bugs me. Because... We're going to talk about, essentially, I mean, jazz is a factor in three movies in a row um, that we're, we're going to talk about here. So from Guy and Madeline to Whiplash and then to La La Land, I think he, he finds a way to move his camera and certainly in the editing, both his own here and then uh, with a key collaborator, as I'll touch on probably as we move into Whiplash, he he finds a kind of musicality in his filmmaking that not many other directors have. Someone like Scorsese is one of the few directors who just seems to think about music in this way and think about its relationship with film and just kind of to really embed it into his works that the work takes on this kind of the same quality of whatever your music is. It takes on its tempo, really leans into it. Like, the films aren't just kind of cut to the music. It's it feels deeper than that. It feels like more at the heart of the movie than just a conscious decision. It really kind of it gets itself into the roots of his movies over, I think, these this spell of movies. And there's a sense of that here. Maybe part of that is, you know, what makes the the musical interludes, as you described, Domingo and Madeline, not feel all that jarring. And yet, I think it is something that is still improved upon significantly as his career progresses. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way, just because music is so ingrained into Guy and Madeline, Whiplash, and La La Land. It it, it doesn't seem like something that would have to be um, a conscious thought beyond the the I guess content of the movies. But uh, the the way you put it there is interesting. One one thing that uh, stood out to me about Guy and Madeline as well from a, a thematic standpoint is it, it does have some of those 
some of those themes that we'll see later in Whiplash and, and La La Land, where it's achieving your dreams despite what seems like impossible odds. Guy is extremely focused on, I guess, becoming a trumpeter. And Madeline is kind of listlessly moving about her life and, and just trying to like figure it out as she go along. So there's a compare and contrast there. I also found it very interesting how unlikable Guy was. And I think that's something that that will come back into play in some of his other movies is how he works with characters that may be a little prickly or selfish. The way he treats his his uh, female companions throughout this movie is is a little unnerving. It, it feels like if if they're not as obsessed with with his uh, trumpeting and jazz as he is, he kind of casts them aside, and he's kind of a wants what he can't have sort of guy. So that was interesting. This is. A movie that's interesting to see to see where Chazelle came from, but uh, other than that, like you said, I'm not I'm not rushing to rewatch it. Yeah, I think there's another couple of things that are worth kind of just highlighting before we move on here. First of all, Guy and Madeline being the character names, um, we have discussed the Umbrellas of Shoreberg on this podcast, so it would be remiss of us not to point out, particularly as also on that episode we did discuss, you know, some of the. The similarities and certainly the the influence that Chazelle himself has spoken of very openly of Umbrella Sherberg on La La Land, but of course Guy or Guy as he is in in the Francophone way, and Madeleine are two key characters in that movie. In fact, Madeleine is who Guy ends up with at the at the end of that film. So clearly the influence of Jacques Demy and of Umbrella Sherberg is there from the off in Chazelle's career. The other thing that I don't know if you even noticed this or came across on here, but I found interesting. Do you know how this got a theatrical release? Did you come across this anywhere? Uh, I did not. So it got a really limited theatrical release. And I mean, ultimately, I mean, the theatrical release it did get is essential in launching his career. And that came about because actor Stanley Tucci saw this movie um, at a festival, I'm assuming, absolutely fell in love with it, and it went on to be released as Stanley Tucci presents Guy and Madeline on a park bench. Wow. Which, it feels very random, but is, like, I guess a really, really important detail in understanding, you know, how Chazelle's career got going. And they haven't worked together on anything since no, then. I, I feel like we need, we need a Stanley Tucci role in the forthcoming Damien Chazelle movie. Wow. I can uh, only yeah. think of one role that he could have done in a Chazelle movie. Well no, that's probably you know, that's pushing too far. He could have he could have been any number of like the, the famous have... actors who pop up in uh First Man. But go on. I think I know where you're going with this, but I'll I'll let you dunk dunk the ball home. Well I, I'm not saying it would be better because I don't think you can improve upon it, but if JK Simmons wasn't in Whiplash could okay. Tucci play that part? I think he could, and I, the the role that I had in my mind was a little smaller. It was the J.K. Simmons role from La La Land, so we're in the Oh, same. sure, he could, he could do that one, too. We're just subbing him in for J.K. Simmons. Who who we both love, so we, we don't want to do yeah. that, but I think that he could have played those roles. I agree with you there. 
Yeah, so that's just kind of a very, uh, feels like a random but interesting note on Guy and Madeline and what was the springboard for Chazelle's career. I had a question for you. You can edit this out if it's not along the theme, but I meant to mention it earlier. What do you make of the scene where Guy's rebound girlfriend, Elena, goes off with a random former Boston police officer and goes hang out with his daughter? Because th- that for some reason was incredibly jarring and the only part of the movie that I was a little unsure of. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I don't think the plot for the first 40-ish minutes, just like the first half, is makes a whole lot of sense. That, to me, is where the new wave influence is really kind of obvious, where that's something that feels, you know, like an intentional choice feels that he's like made. something that could it's... happen in Lola, even. Sure, maybe maybe there is part of that, but I even think it's like, you know, guy in film school making his first movie decides, you know, it'd be really cool if I just, you know, just to basically, just to stick it to everyone, I at some point just let this movie completely go off in a different direction. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, that's a really godardian thing that i think is nine times out of ten gonna be executed incredibly poorly i don't think it works particularly well here but i like i don't think i'm open to correction if anyone feels differently and if anyone had seen guy and madeline which is on prime in the u.s right so this is prime with an add-on so i had to sign up okay i had to sign up for like a million different uh free trials for the last uh few weeks to get everything <laughs> in so those are gonna start coming up so i gotta stay woke on my subscriptions but yeah it's it's pretty easily found in the u.s well if anyone watches it and you feel that particular detour in the story is serving a greater narrative purpose like he would have decided to put in there for reasons tied to the script or even character development uh, let us know because I, I don't think it is I think it's more just a, you know wouldn't it be cool and there, there's certainly that element to Chazelle I even think to Chazelle's persona there's this kind of I don't know I say this as someone who is incredibly nerdy about film and has gone to film school but there's a real kind of film school vibe off Chazelle you know what I mean? And even the way he speaks, the way he carries himself, there's a, you know, maybe an element of snobbery. Maybe that's not intentional, but I, I think he's just kind of so literate and clearly so passionate about movies and certain kinds of movies that it's almost there as a shorthand in some of his work. Some of the things that people should just know, they should just pick up on, where I think that's not the case. I, I think that could also have a kind of a key impact in terms of how his how his movies translate to larger audiences, which I'm I'm not entirely sure about. I think First Man will get into some of the stuff I guess that came around that, which had nothing to do with him. But I, I do also think I don't know, is there something about him that like on the one hand he just seems made to make the smartest big budget Hollywood movies you can find that aren't like high concept Christopher Nolan stuff. If someone was going to be able to make really compelling dramas that were just incredibly well shot and had kind of bold ideas without having to kind of work their way into something that's almost like IP, I think it's him. And yet I don't know if his movies have landed like that. So I, I don't know. I don't know if you agree with me or see what I'm kind of getting at with him, but I do feel like 
he has a certain kind of quality to him or a persona that I I find it daring because I am also into these things, but it could be a little bit abrasive if you're not quite as into that. Or if you, you just view movies in a very different way. I think another person who comes to mind who would have something similar is Ari Aster. There's just, just this kind of ultra-passionate cinephile that, you know... <laughs> When there, when Chazelle is like going on and on about Demi, or Ari Aster's going on and on about Bergman, a certain kind of person's just like, yeah, okay, I get it, right? I get it. I like movies, but you like this thing over here. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think the the film school intellectual aspect of his persona and his filmmaking is one of the things I like and respect most about him because I'm certainly not that. So when I see his movies or watch an interview or read an interview with him or talk to you for example uh i feel like i learn a lot and so that's one thing that i i really enjoy about his filmmaking and just him talking about the movies he loves and the movies that he makes we've talked about this offline but he's someone that really 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 embraces the things that inspire him and the works that inspire him without ripping them off and i think one of the reasons that he succeeds in that department is because he's so thoughtful about the way that he does it. And that's because he's paid attention and he really is a student of movie making. I will agree with your point though, that that might not be something that the random movie goer might embrace notice or even think about. And maybe they're not turned off by it, but it's not something that they would think to, to really go all in on um, themselves, if that makes sense. So maybe you're subconsciously ignoring a movie just because of those aspects. Yeah, well, he also channels himself in a way into his movies that's like jarringly personal, that maybe it's not obvious to everyone. Maybe they just feel that, though, and that has something that leads to a, a very kind of small disconnect that can exist, I think, with how audiences respond to his movies. Because he doesn't make art house movies. I mean, if you're going to say he's got an art house movie, it's Guy and Madeline because it was made on no budget and it was quite experimental and it's black and white and it's, you know, contemporary is black and white, but it, it's, it's shot on 16 millimeter and it, it really looks like it could have been made in the sixties or the seventies. And at the same time, there's something so deeply personal about, you could probably say all of his movies, but certainly his, his first three movies. I mean, as much as he he's like he adores film and film is like central to everything he's become he did want to be a jazz drummer you know jazz is a big part of his life so the fact that the first three movies are set around male protagonists who are like obsessed with jazz and then even when he finally moves away from jazz he makes a neil armstrong movie that very much kind of is happy to dwell in I guess the intensity of Armstrong's focus and how how it took a certain kind of individual to do the things he did. Like, I don't know. There is something with that. And even as we'll say it to Whiplash now, like, I don't know if if Whiplash is what I would like to think it is or what a lot of people maybe think it is or if it's much more sincere than that. Like, I don't know if Whiplash the ultimate kind of message of that movie is, and particularly its final sequence, its final shots, tell something about 
Chazelle's view of, you know, art and any kind of notion of genius and what's necessary. Or if it's something the other way, the fact that he moved away from jazz and he then made First Man, which is about a very kind of particular type of achievement, again, is really interesting to me. But I I do think he, he straddles this line between, you know, he's got these real kind of independent and art house sensibilities, and yet he makes movies that on their face are very, very commercial. And there is always something there. I think his movies will always have the potential to be just a colossal smash or to kind of fall on their face in a way that he may never get to make another movie as big as that again. Like, I think that's what the rest of his career could look like. Yeah, I mean, you could say that La La Land bought him some clout or or ability to overcome uh, a bomb if that were to happen, but I don't think that really exists anymore in today's movie-making environment. I think Whiplash, maybe just as much, Andrew. I mean, Whiplash gross like 50 million dollars on a three million budget okay i'm gonna off the top of my head i'm gonna say like that's probably the most successful non-horror blumhouse movie ever and like blumhouse don't tend to seek out non-horror movies so it speaks to something of what they i guess they felt like they had a they had identified in chazelle and in that concept and that movie but he's leveled up is is my point up until first man which we'll get to um, but he's leveled up and shown the ability to scale up and scale up profit with that as well. Yeah, somehow I'd forgotten that that Blumhouse uh, put put this out, and it was jarring when I was watching this and I saw the opening credits. I thought I'd clicked on the wrong movie uh, <laughs> at first, but but anyway, back to your larger point about how his films can kind of be self-referential. Moving on to Whiplash, I think you said you weren't exactly sure about what the message of this overall film is and how it's been interpreted. I think there's a lot of gray area there because I don't think it's necessarily 100% endorsing that kind of mentality and that kind of coaching slash teaching in uh, in particular, but I also don't know that it's not necessarily rejecting it. It, it. The whole film's really a rumination on to what degree is obsession healthy. And mm. you know, like you could see him put himself in the the Miles Teller role there, and it's almost like J.K. Simmons can be seen as his kind of his mindset and how he pushes himself to be great. And I, like I said, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily saying that this is a hundred percent the only way you can be successful in creative endeavors. Is is if you push yourself to a degree that that feels unhealthy. But it's also saying, you know what, sometimes it works. We get to the end of the film and then there's that big triumphant moment. It's almost like how I felt when I got to the end of the last dance. I was I was just gonna bring this up. I was just it's the perfect time in some ways to talk about Giselle. No one else other than, you know, one of us on this podcast would be just bringing the last dance into Giselle conversation. But as you started to talk about that, I just started to think, I wonder if Damien Giselle watched The Last Dance and if so, I feel like I know what his read on Michael Jackson, on Michael Jackson, on Michael Jordan, and his not just his work ethic, but his way of dri- driving others might well be. I also wonder: Has Michael Jordan watched Whiplash? I know Kobe Bryant did, and Kyrie Irving did, but I'm not sure if MJ made it uh, made it out to the the multiplex for that one. Kyrie Irving? Yeah, there's an article where he writes Whiplash or at least one point in his career wrote whiplash on his shoes before every game. Wow. 
<laughs> okay. I'm not surprised that Kobe Sam was probably into Whiplash, which again speaks to the Michael Jordan of it all. But if there was ever like if there's ever to be a feature film, you know, fictionalized, dramatized version of Michael Jordan's life, although some former bulls would claim that we've just seen a fictionalized, dramatized version of his life. Chazelle would not be the the worst pick for that because these are the characters that he's drawn to. Yeah, that's a that's a good shout. And at the end of the last dance, I didn't come away with the feeling. Last dance spoilers. It was well, it's the nineteen ninety eight Chicago Bulls people. If you don't know by now, then just go to a Wikipedia page. You don't need to watch all the last dance. While that was largely Michael Jordan propaganda that I loved every minute of, I don't think it 100% endorsed his type of abusive leadership. It said, here's the kind of success you can have if you've got a superstar pushing you this way. But I also think that the, the viewpoints of some of his teammates and some of the terrible things we saw him do to those teammates does leave a little doubt in your mind that does it really have to be this way? And th- that's the gray area that Whiplash seems to fall into. I mean, J.K. Simmons, who plays Terrence Fletcher, one of the the great supporting performances we've had in, in the last 10 years. I mean, he's absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. Just completely inhabited this guy who's clearly a monster, but they also inject enough humanity into him to make him seem like a real person. And he sincerely believes that what he's doing is what has to happen for him to truly push someone to be great. And there's something really interesting about that because that exists everywhere where throughout society. And I think it lends itself more to sports greatness or creative greatness rather than uh, your asshole boss in a sales department for some tech company. Like, Sure. I think some people misread these type of things and apply it to normal life. You know those guys uh, watch these movies or watch their favorite athletes and go, yeah, that's how I'm going to I'm gonna manage my sales team. It doesn't quite work the same way. Like, this is the also the byproduct of, like, a movie like Wolf of Wall Street, when Wolf of Wall Street comes out. And I know, like, here, for example, Jordan Belfort comes and plays big venues with speaking tours, like, once a year in Ireland and I'm like I you know whoever the people who are going to pay to go and see him talk if they could just like wear badges around on a day-to-day basis I could know to avoid them but there is all when you put these things on screen there is always this element of you know who just gets drawn into that and who admires it and I honestly I don't know with Chazelle like I think with Chazelle he clearly like with Whiplash he puts enough of a lens on Simmons band leader uh, Fletcher in the movie just he shows us that he's a maniac he shows us that he's like completely abusive that he's out of control we don't get a sense his life is in any great order because of that much like how in the last dance you get Michael Jordan for for all of his his six rings we get at the end of episode seven I think it is where you know he breaks down at the end when he starts talking about him not saying nice things about people. And you can either you can either cut it or you can't. Where the fact that he's breaking down at that point, the fact that, you know, he's sitting with a glass of whiskey and kind of whiskey eyes for most of the most of the series, you know, there's 
there's an implicit question, and I think the same is there in Whiplash, which is, this guy's a maniac. He's also a genius. And I also think both things finish on a point of, you know, we acknowledge this isn't great, but is it worth it? Is it actually worth it in the end? And I I do wonder, I love Whiplash. I think Whiplash is a really, really great movie. I mentioned this to you and I rewatched it yesterday. I, I Definitely, I've seen it maybe just once other than when I saw it first in theatre since it's come out, but it's been quite a few years and I felt like I discovered it all over again. I just just forgotten enough about it, not in terms of its plot or anything, but just in terms of the overall impact and how it makes you feel to almost experience it anew, and I was blown away. It's a really, really special movie. But that final sequence, and in spite of all of the things that uh, Andrew and Fletcher have done to each other throughout the movie and the way their relationship is managed, as the final sequence plays out and we're kind of cutting from one to the other and they both got these crazed smiles on their faces, to me there's the, you know it's worth it, right? Isn't it? It's worth it at the end of the day. We're the geniuses. We couldn't live in another way. And I do, I think that is an interesting element in all of Chazelle's work, because even now in a couple of minutes, when we move to talk about La La Land, you know, Ryan Gosling's character, Sebastian, he, he is not the genius, but he wants to be, and he's living his life, revering these people and wanting to channel them in whatever way he can that I, I think it's interesting as a kind of recurring team across Giselle's work. That that final scene is mind-blowing. And like you, I, I'd maybe seen it once since uh, the theatrical release, um, the year it came out, and seeing it again, again, was like discovering it for the first time. We get to the end of the movie, and we've seen Andrew Neiman go on this journey. We can call it a a trip to rock bottom, really. But in that moment, there's a begrudging respect and recognition between both of them because they recognize themselves in one another. They both have that relentless drive for greatness over everything else. There's a scene earlier in the movie that I was talking with you about yesterday where Andrew's on a date with the, a woman he meets at the movie theater, and they're talking about their lives and, and what they're doing with school. And he's asking her, you know, what are you studying? What do you want to do with your life? And she's a, I mean, a first year college student. She's just trying to figure it out. She doesn't know what her major is going to be. And he just cannot comprehend not having an ultimate goal to strive for. So Andrew and Fletcher are, are really the same type of person. I mean, a- Andrew talks about it at the dinner table with his family that he'd rather uh, die alone in his 30s and have a bunch of strangers talking about him than be surrounding with surrounded with friends that that love him i mean it's an incredibly intense thing to say at a family dinner it really is that type of motivation towards greatness is something that's so single-minded and specific that it, it borders on insane and i think Terrence there is Richards the same way you can imagine him no wife very few friends that only talk to him on a superficial level because of how great of a musician and a teacher he is and he's sitting at home every night drinking whiskey, listening to old jazz albums. There is uh, another scene in Whiplash that I I really like because it just completely, you know, reveals, just in case you didn't notice, Andrew is a sociopath. Like, he is, he is not okay. This is not a normal person. And that is the breakup scene 
and the way he's processing that whole conversation and the way that interaction plays out in the fact that he thinks this is normal and a healthy way to break up and that everything he's saying is completely reasonable and he's really, you know, he's doing a solid uh, by getting this out of the way right now, where in fact, you know, he is out of control, like narcissistic and self-obsessed beyond anyone's kind of, beyond where anyone should ever go. And I find it interesting that the movie has that moment and yet where it finishes. And that's that's still I, I appreciate it, I like it for that, but I, I do wonder just what way that ultimately plays out in Chazelle's head. Just the idea of this kind of single minded pursuit of something. Because let's be honest, he may have failed at jazz, but I've no doubt that Chazelle has applied himself to cinema in that same way and ultimately seen it pay off for him. Telling a woman that she's a roadblock because of your own insanity and drivenness may not sound like an insult, but trust, it is. <laughs> oh, it, it does. It does. Um, little, little did Andrew Neiman know. Good casting of Miles Teller, I'll just say. The one thing I want to talk about with Whiplash before we move on. I mean, sure, Guy and Madeline is his directorial debut. It is his first movie. To me, though, the first Chazelle movie, in terms of what I associate that with, and also, to get us back to the Eddie somewhat here, the thing that is missing from the Eddie, the first movie that has this particular quality is Whiplash. And that is because I think there are there are three things that are central to his movies. One is obviously him, his direction, his eye, um, his storytelling, whether he is actually being the primary writer on the project or if it's just he's shaping it with the camera Giselle at the center of it then you've got Justin Hurwitz and his scores as you've already mentioned they have an incredibly close relationship I'm sure the fact that Giselle himself is like musically literate and obviously took music very seriously at a point in his life in terms of his own playing also assists in terms of how he can uh, how he can I guess, find these perfect fits for music in his movies and how he can even communicate with his composer, which is something that a lot of filmmakers have to do in a way that's, you know, completely non-musical. If you or I became directors, maybe you, I don't know, you love music, but I don't know if you are or ever were musical. No, so that that's definitely... So we'd, we'd have to communicate with a composer, and this is one of the... Like, the great composers know how to do this better than anything, is they can sit down with a director. A director can just talk, like, what's really, you know, some stupid everyman <laughs> descriptions of, like, really vague things to a composer of, oh, I want this to sound like this. And the great composers can actually figure that out and say, okay, well, really what they're asking for, but they don't know they're asking for is this. Chazelle has an advantage in that regard. So you've got Chazelle, you've got Justin Horowitz. I think the other key, key figure in Damien Chazelle's filmography is Tom Cross. Tom Cross is the editor who has worked with Chazelle on three feature films, starting with Blash Running True to First Man with La La Land in the middle. Um, he won the Academy Award for Best Editing for Whiplash and very deservedly so because this is this is right up there amongst the best edited movies of the decade. This is where I find 
the Eddie disappointing again, and Tom Cross is not involved in the Eddie. He doesn't edit any episodes, not even Chazelle's. So this is the first time since Guy and Madeline that Chazelle has had something out there that wasn't edited by Tom Cross and wasn't scored by Justin Hurwitz. But there's something about, I guess the camera doesn't always have to work as hard in Whiplash. When it's working its way through a scene, when it's trying to capture a band, right, and the feeling of a band, there are some some nice pans, or I even think there are a couple of nice tracks where you're taking more of that scene in and you're getting different perspectives. But more than that, there's a real precision to, you know, pinpoint editing, editing to the music, but also building up a real rhythm that amps up the overall, you know, the tension and the intensity of this movie. I think it's so, so crucial to it is I even remember seeing this in a movie theater and it's, it's an intense experience. And I think the editing gets something for that. It gets something for the pacing and the rhythm and also knowing when to really kind of ramp up, rapid cut, rapid cut, rapid cut. And then when to just like back out and let this breed and let, if it's J.K. Simmons, like tear, tear uh, Miles Teller apart. Well, okay, we're going to do that. But I just think there are very few movies you could watch over the past 10, 15 years, particularly movies that are actually like busy editing movies, movies that are like edit heavy. It's not even about, you know, Often when you see a movie that has a lot of cuts, it's not very well edited because you should have your scenes kind of conceived a certain way, then hopefully successfully captured, and you're then stitching it together. But this is a movie where the editing becomes like a real core feature of its style. It moves front and center. It's maybe the boldest decision in the movie probably outside of where Simmons goes with his performance. And it ties it all together in a way that's just incredibly powerful. And I think then also becomes something that we see. We never, like, Chanel hasn't made another movie that quite has this intensity or this subject matter. Not subject matter as much as, I guess, some kind of, I don't know, there's a certain essence to this movie that definitely isn't in La La Land and isn't quite there in First Man. So they're not the same. Tom Cross hasn't had to do the same thing since. But there is a kind of, I think, an understanding between the two of them, the way in which he manipulates Chazelle's work. I think they make for a really strong duo in terms of collaborators. And when I watch the Eddie, I'm like, this is just off. This doesn't feel like Chazelle. I already knew it wasn't her with scoring. But then I went, I wonder who edited this. And it wasn't edited by Tom Cross, who is maybe even more important to him as a collaborator than Hurwitz. I, I could imagine his movie with someone else's music. It's not likely to happen given their, their close personal relationship, but I, I don't know if it would be great to have someone other than Tom Cross edit his movies right now. Yeah, it's a perfectly edited movie. Bohemian Rhapsody, it is not. It is not, and I think the interesting thing is it probably has, like, well, no, it, it probably doesn't have quite the same kind of cutting rate as Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Uh, but it's not far off, but it's not far off for, you know, intentional by design reasons, not let's just make this thing into something that we can release. Like, let's really intentionally work with our cuts here, have every cut do something, have it be really purposeful so that it's not just, oh, we're moving from shot to shot, scene to scene. 
it's we're leaving a, an impression on like the back of your eyes with each of these cuts it's it's giving the movie a kind of propulsive nature that fits with the music that fits with the jazz it's a it's a movie that i think is a really interesting example of you know marrying music and film together and how can you capture the spirit of both i think it's a lot of times you can get a great music movie that's like oh the music's great and it's a it works overall but it's not the filmmaking isn't necessarily matching the music it's it's not necessarily going to the same place or bring the same quality or standard that's being set by where the music is in the movie i think this is one where it all works perfectly in concert one aspect of that that you mentioned beyond the music is I think with the the intensity of the scenes where he is being berated, there's a point where that almost becomes too intense or not, not too intense, but if those things go on too long or aren't cut in the proper way, it loses its impact and just becomes either gross as we hear him say these despicable things or it's not as intense as it needs to be. So there is a fine line there that uh, they walk perfectly. Uh, I think all three of them should just continue making movies together forever, but that's just me. Yeah. I mean, so far there's not a whole lot of reason to object to that. I think the three movies they've made together have both been pretty exceptional. Um, Okay. Let's move on to the second of their three collaborations. Then the most well-known of Chazelle's movies, the most decorated, the movie that for, you know, just about 20 seconds it seemed like had won him a best picture oscar and that is la la land uh andrew this is if not your favorite film it is one of your favorite films we've talked a little bit about it twice on this podcast a little bit in the jack to me episode a little bit in our very first episode right in the kind of movies that shaped us sort of one yep and on our previous podcast which is I think no longer anywhere in the internet, but some listeners I know did this too at the time. We went really deep on La La Land. So I, I don't know. I don't know how much more you have to say about this. I think I do have a few things, a few things that were just kind of interesting to me or jumped out with a bit of a remove again. It's a movie that I've watched lots of times, but I hadn't quite seen it very recently. And I think in just watching it in the context of Chazelle's career gave me something different. But what did what did you take from La La Land on this watch, which is probably like your 100th overall? Yeah, for me, it's largely become comfort food. It's it's a good thing. It's been raining all week because it's a great rainy day movie. Really, for me, what this is with Chazelle is him at his most like auteurist vision stage. Him and Justin Hurwitz and now that you mentioned Tom Cross, <laughs> all working together to create their unique vision and really steer into the the things he loves about classic musicals and movies. I mean, it's the one where he's always leaning into his influences, but this is where I think it's the most heavy. I mean, Umbrellas of Shoreberg, Young Girls of Rochefort, there's probably some, some singing in the rain in there. And obviously, the Ryan Gosling character, Sebastian, and his obsession with jazz is kind of the stand-in for Chazelle there. So it's him really just getting to live out his dream as a filmmaker and make the exact film he wanted to make. I think the the screenplay for this dates back to 2010, so it predates Whiplash, and I think it's while well, it lands the movie that he always wanted to make, but 
obviously Guy and Madeline was something he could make with a smaller budget as well as Whiplash. So it's something that he had to kind of build to and work towards, even though it's the thing that he'd probably been holding on to the longest. Obviously, this is where he gets to have that higher budget and have a movie that's it's more of a spectacle. Whiplash is undeniably great and maybe I think it's a movie with fewer flaws than La La Land, but La La Land is on a much grander scale and the degree of difficulty is so much higher. Uh, It's really one of my favorite films of all time. I mean, the countless uh, song and dance numbers against the backdrop of a love story against the backdrop of two people trying to achieve their wildest dreams. And uh, I've seen it probably 25 times, not quite 100. It's it's getting to the 20s. I think Jordan might might be over 25, though. I think you really could be over that mark. I might be. Um, there was a quote that I read in in an article that he was interviewed about it, and I, I thought this was interesting because you, you and I were having that conversation. Actually, I, I'll, I'll let. I think you're going to bring this up, so I don't want to steal your hundred thunder here. I'll uh, I'll work the quote in when you when you talk about. Um, oh, go on, lead with it, and if it if it sets me up to talk about something else, I mean, we can do it. Go for it. So really, he he was talking about how making a Hollywood musical in 2016 relates to his characters in the movie. So his quote was, I have a, in my head, a version of the debate that John Legend and Ryan Gosling have in the movie about jazz. If you apply that to movies, there's the same idea. Do you try to preserve what you love about past the past of an art form at the risk of marginalizing it? Or do you push it toward the future at the risk of bastardizing it? And that's what he's trying to accomplish with La La Land, trying to pay homage to his influences and the movies that he loves from the 50s and 60s without turning it into something that's uh i guess exploitative or cheap yeah interesting i do i had a different uh a different scene that i even highlighted i said this to you and i felt like a complete idiot i really did i felt like i've seen this movie quite a few times and how is this never clicked i mean this is not something that requires a deep reading i'm sure lots of people picked this up on the first viewing of the movie and I don't know. It just, it never escaped me. Maybe I was just too much under La La Land spell and kind of active brain was disengaged at the time. I don't know. But the the scene that I, I pointed to and said to you that really jumped out to me as, you know, okay, this is Chazelle. Now, the backlash that eventually came to this movie not long before the Oscars was tied to the idea of the white savior and the character Sebastian's love for jazz. And it was largely kind of, it was viewed as like a reflection of Chazelle. So as we've already mentioned, Chazelle's own interest in jazz, obviously Guy and Madeline and Whiplash had preceded this. He had his own background as a, a jazz drummer and had someone who had been, you know, successful in bands growing up. So the view became, you know, this is Chazelle putting himself into this, and this is the idea of a white savior of jazz. Which, if you want to take the movie on its surface, there is an element of that that can't be disputed. I think, though, what was being lost there is, this is not a movie about jazz at all. This is maybe, other than First Man, which is not about jazz at all, or is it? Um, <laughs> this might be least about jazz of his movies. Maybe that's not even a take. But this is about movies, and this is about movie musicals. And there's a scene which it's like their, if not quite their first conversation, because that comes under walking through the movie a lot. It's when they first go to the club, which is name now is escaping me. 
I can't remember. But Sebastian and Mia first go to the jazz club. She she says to him, I'll, let me be honest, I don't really like jazz. And his response is, right, we're going to a jazz club. We're going to go. We're going to watch this. And we're going to do this. And he embarks on this, like, really impassioned rant about jazz and about everything jazz is. And about, oh, it's, you know, it's all of these different people coming together and doing this. And this person takes it this way. And that person takes it another way. And I was like, oh, my God, he's just talking about movies. And more than movies, he's talking about the movie musical specifically. And this is a genre, a form of movie making that Chazelle is deeply passionate about. I'm like, okay, here it is. So this is, it's, this is the movie musical about the movie musical. And I mean, that's kind of made pretty explicit later on when we get like, at the most crucial moment of the film, we get what's almost like a dream sequence. It's a fancy sequence that visually just kind of loses itself in traditional, okay, look at the musical sets. You know, this is, this is like MGM sets. This is what we made this for. That quote you give, though, is interesting because I do think there was part of this movie that when I watched it, I went, hmm, is this not good? <laughs> I haven't watched this all. Is it not good? And that's kind of the first 30 minutes. There are some good songs there. There's also a terrible song. My, my uh, opinions on the opener another day son right yeah you can you guys can just go listen to the shock to me episode for that or exactly or it's our, in there or our first it's, episode as we broke down on that it's a ripoff of the young girls of rochford's opener and the song yeah not a fan of someone in the crowd i think is a good song but i think there's a disconnect with the first half hour of the movie where it's trying to be modern and the whole movie is modern, but it's really trying to be modern and not be, like, too on the nose about the, the movie musical of it all. Where when they have their, I think, the first real signature song and dance of the movie, which is on the hilltop, when you get the kind of, almost the slapstick elements when, like, they're sitting down and Gosling is tapping his feet and he's, like, kicking dust across. Uh, like, that is so old-fashioned. And that, to me, is where the movie takes off. And there's something increasingly kind of classic about how the movie looks from that point on that really invokes, you know, old school MGM style musical from that point on. And I I think that's where the movie takes off and that's where it really works, where it is modern, but it's not shying away from the fact that it wants to remind us about what was great about those movies, where early on, I mean, sure, it's a musical, but it doesn't resemble, you know, classic Hollywood musicals. For me, here's the way I look at that, and I've seen it too many times to to really be critical. Um, but th- the beginning, the build up to that point, works for me because it's like, to me, not everything clicks into place for the characters until they really have that spark. And so, that kind of progression from the beginning of the movie to there really works for me because that's when we see them set off on their journey for their romance and they've really connected with another person that's going to push them to achieve their dreams so that all works for me i get for you why it doesn't we're not going to talk about another day of sun because it's raining and i could use another day of sun <laughs> but uh yeah but just, what i mean yeah, when, when what, a waste, what a waste of a lovely night i think i think i know the names of all these songs but i'm no longer confident like i would have been like three years ago that's the name of it right a lovely night, yeah. That song, you'd agree there's something just classic about it. There is something, 
like it's at that point I feel the movie and those characters are transported back in time not literally I mean it's still somewhat looks like I'm not gonna say entirely somewhat looks like contemporary LA that kicks something off though because from there then you end up where they go and see uh, a rebel without a cause and you even have when Emma Stone walks into walks into the theater and she's like standing in front of like the beam of light and the music at that point it's the the actual score of the film itself and just the way her her face is captured by the whole scene is lit like that is that is so old-fashioned and i mean that in the best possible sense like there's nothing about that that's contemporary sure i guess maybe yeah when they come to know each other and things click it i i just i don't know why exactly why exactly it gets this feeling of like it's transporting you from that point and not before it, particularly based on what her interests are as a character. It's not like this, it's not like they're bowed into classic musicals and they come together and their life then becomes a classic musical, if you know what I mean. And uh, to be clear on this, I, I still really love this movie. I think it's just kind of, it is so kind of transcendent as a, as a film watching experience from that kind of 30 minute point on that I, I forgive anything that I don't think is quite perfect before that. It doesn't really take away from the overall experience for me, but I do think on this, on this viewing, I wasn't quite sure if the first kind of 30 minutes were the best it could be for the movie or if they, they made entire sense for what it was. I think that look, there's some other like, I'm not saying it's perfect from 30 minutes on. There is some sag around the time with the the John Legend band and like some of those scenes are not great. I mean, it's quite heavy handed. The ideas that he's exploring there are interesting, but maybe he's getting lost too much in trying to translate his own ideas if they are about movies into the movie for jazz. Like I'm thinking the scene with the weirdly cartoonish British photographer like that press shoot that's a weird scene yes it is uh, and i think a lot of i mean i don't know how many rewrites he went through on this but a lot of this could date back to when he originally wrote this script i guess he, he, in his progression as a filmmaker from a screenwriting standpoint and from a story standpoint uh this would have been before whiplash which is a much tighter movie and obviously before first man which is a a great movie in and of itself i think it is his most imperfect of the three movies his major studio releases it's my favorite and i'm biased that way but it's definitely the one with more flaws but like you said the sublime and the like the take you out of this world moments where it succeeds really make that not really a factor for me but again you know i've got my rose-colored glasses on i think my favorite shot in any chazelle movie is from a lovely night like you were discussing dancing at magic hour it's it's mm-hmm. visually stunning as well as the one of the the final shots of the movie but yeah i i see where you're coming from with all this and obviously you seeing it over and over again and i think probably since I, the I last do. time you I saw also, it, you're a little more educated than the last time you exactly, saw it right exactly what i would say and i think specifically about musicals and about the influences that Chazelle kind of brings into this so maybe I just now bring more baggage to it than I did the first time I saw it and you know Chazelle is probably in part the credit for that I don't know if I had seen Ambrose Sherberg before I saw La La Land 
I can't quite remember. It's possible that I hadn't. So there's there's this, an extra layer, something that's brought to it for me, and you're right to point that out. I was about to say the same thing. Uh, but it, it's a it's a really great movie, and it's like it doesn't it doesn't need to be perfect. Just I don't really believe there's such thing as a perfect movie. It's the fact that you know Whiplash was a success, and then he's emboldened, and he's given the money to go and make that, and he got a major studio release out of that movie. Like that kind of movie is dead, was dead anyway. I mean, it grossed four hundred and fifty million dollars and was nominated for fourteen Academy Awards. So technically, if someone comes up with a really great idea for a musical that's going to be kind of classic Hollywood, I would think studios should be, you know, taking a long, hard look at it. We haven't exactly seen a wave of films like that since. I mean, maybe a little bit more openness to to musicals, but I don't think we've necessarily got that kind of musical since. Who knows how that goes going forward, but I I think it is a great film. I was going to say, and the fact that it was released when he was 31. He won Best Director at 32. Makes me feel like a piece Very of Very depressing. Shit. Let's, let's move on from that. <laughs> Thanks for... I, I wish I just kept going and didn't give you a chance to come in with that detail. Okay, his most recent movie came out in 2018. It is Neil Armstrong biopic. It is First Man. First Man made $105 million, but kind of bombed. It had a 70 million budget. It was about Neil Armstrong. It's about the moon landing. Like, of non IP, this is, you know, everyone knows what this is. Everyone's going to go and see it, right? Wrong is the answer. Uh, because a, a certain president of the United States decided to have his say, Buzz Aldrin decided to have his say, and they all got very upset about where flags were or weren't in the movie. Uh, without seeing the movie, I feel like in all cases, uh, this is the this is the funny thing about it. I think the consensus is that had a real impact on the box office. I think this came out as you know was kind of the buzz was the, was that this was an unpatriotic movie, and certainly a certain kind of audience member made a point to not go and see the Neil Armstrong movie that they very well would have gone to see otherwise, and that certainly hurt it. The fact is, that's not really true. This is a pretty patriotic movie. There's there's one shot on my rewatch today, I don't know if you've noticed this, but where his son is, like, raising a flag, yeah. which is incredibly reverential. Um, which is, like, for me, as a non-American, I'm like, okay, okay, come on, you know, tone it down a bit. This is a bit much. But I found that interesting, even on the rewatch, that a scene like that is in it. Like, I can't think of many movies that, you know, will take a moment to have that kind of sequence. And yet the commotion around it was what it was. I guess somewhat tied off that this was originally a film that Clint Eastwood was slated to direct for a long, long time. Just shoot the bleach directly into my veins now if I would have ever <laughs> had to watch that. Um, he was attached to it from 2003 and I think it was like 2012, 2013 before he dropped out of that Chazelle became attached Gosling came on which an interesting note something we didn't touch on there because I think we probably have discussed it on some podcast at some time before but originally I mean La La Land was going to be Miles Teller and Emma Watson and Emma Watson dropped out and Emma Stone took it and went on to win an Academy Award and Miles Teller dropped out and Ryan Gosling came in and kind of stole Miles Teller's Damien Chazelle's Muse Thunder 
which, like, if that didn't change, would Miles Teller have been Neil Armstrong? I mean, maybe in the sense that Damien Chazelle would have wanted him to be, but it would not have worked. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's more of a Buzz Aldrin, really, I think, Miles Teller. Oh, man. Um, if he were a little older, he would have been a great Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. <laughs> he just missed out on that one. This is a movie, though, in all seriousness, that I think is one of the most underappreciated movies of the past decade, perhaps because of all the noise that was around it. Maybe because of its release time, it was released, I feel like October, November, which is like, it's kind of the wrong time it's become for a movie. If you want to be in the awards race, you want to either be kind of August or December. There's nothing scientific about this, but I think for Buzz, you either want to be just far enough out that you can build up some real momentum and like some super strong word amount and everyone gets to see it and everyone gets to hear everything about it without it being so long that you skid into the backlash. And then on the other side of it, I mean, sometimes you can just come out and you can be, you know, the hot thing at the right time and ride your way to it. Maybe this was also hurt by the fact that all the backlash came up front. And at that point, uh, there was a lot of people who I don't think were ready for, you know, the conversations of what it actually is as a movie. But, and I know a film, again, on the old iteration of our podcast that we discussed and a film that, I think we both have a lot of affection for it, but I have a particularly deep affection for it. I think it's one of the better films, again, of of recent years, is Pablo Laurent's Jackie, his Jackie Kennedy biopic. And I think these two movies are like perfect kind of partners. They do something that you don't really, you don't tend to associate with this kind of movie. You know, the biopic is usually one of the most kind of by the numbers lazy formulas that Hollywood turns to. You get a famous person, someone people like or are interested in, they'll go see the movie and you could get some kind of caricature-ish, caricature-ish performances and, you know, it's fine. People see it, no one necessarily will talk about it. Maybe if it's decent, it gets some acclaim and kind of overperform, but it doesn't really matter as a movie. I think this is a case of something that has bolder ideas, much like Jackie did. I think both of those movies, they take, like, just like two of the most significant events of the 20th century. Like if not, you know, they're, they're probably both top 10, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it gets at, I guess the magnitude and the incredible significance and the stuff that's just kind of beyond their comprehension, beyond their imagination. But it also gets right to the heart of the human element of it. And I think in first man, that's particularly incredible because it's at this point it's no there's no real novelty in being like oh look at look at just how kind of breathtaking space looks in this movie or i mean there's been a whole wave of sci-fi and horror that's kind of looked at space a certain way yeah we're used to portrayals of space but not necessarily about the kind of the human element of it and obviously the achievement at the heart of this movie and Chazelle did something really interesting in that the movie is both like immaculate and as kind of I feel like it's it's perfect I don't mean just as a movie as I've already touched I don't like that but there's something that's very just meticulous about how this is put together and yet it's meticulous in showcasing that the Apollo missions for example were uh, pretty seedier pants stuff you know 
there's a lot of kind of close-ups of the literally the the nuts and bolts of like these rockets shaking to their core we see all of the the cost of these missions not in terms of financial cost which i think is obvious and often would be explored but in terms of the actual human cost the toll it took on people and the actual lives that were lost along the way for this to happen and it gets to the heart of armstrong who is you know one of the most famous people who ever lived for what he achieved but it gets it gets into his story in a very interesting insular way that's very reflective. I don't feel as ever slow, but certainly kind of lingers in his psyche in a way that few movies or few filmmakers would be prepared to do. I think overall it gives a film that like it will take your breath away when it needs to. Like it's moon landing sequence and where it it actually moves from from being shot on film the whole way through to then going to to IMAX for the moon landing, which is a really kind of, it's one of the great kind of transitions for effect. Someone doing something bold. We see a lot of kind of aspect ratio shifting and things like this in recent years, but this is one that it's like the sound works like a vacuum at the time. And you're just kind of, you're dropped in space. I mean, technically you're dropped in like a, I don't know, like a landfill in Atlanta, but you feel like you're on the moon. And there is just something about the overall balance of this movie. It gets the scale right. It gets the moments where you need to marvel at it. But it also brings you into, you know, this is an actual person who did this. These are real people who are responsible for this. And, like, it's the definitive Moon movie. I mean, I don't I don't think there's anything else close to it. I think it is one of the definitive space movies. Certainly is something that isn't really kind of losing itself deep in sci-fi or horror. Yeah, and while it's, I agree with everything you just said, while it's about the moon landing and the process that got us there, I think where it succeeds mostly is as a character study of Neil Armstrong, who's a person that kind of seems unknowable. I mean, the actual Neil Armstrong was a very reluctant American hero. He wanted to do his job and do his job well, but he didn't, you know, apply for the, the Jiminy mission with a goal of, of becoming famous. He just wanted to do his job. And it's also kind of, as you dig a little deeper into him, this movie is really about grief and how sometimes certain type of men in Armstrong's case are unable to process grief. I mean, he's got tragedy in his personal life and his professional life. As you were saying, the fly by the seat of your pants nature of these missions meant that when testing some things out and trying to figure out different strategies and techniques people died and he processes those deaths the same way he processes his daughter's death by internalizing everything and that's what's so special about ryan gosling's performance because we're seeing him come off la la land where his character's uh sarcastic and charming and uh not bombastic but he he's doing a lot of expressive acting and he, he's being cool and charming but he's also has his little moments of outburst when he's defending jazz or, or something yeah like it's that. a very showy performance exactly and this is a an exercise in restraint and really re- repression mm-hmm. his calm demeanor and the matter of fact way in which he speaks always keeping an even tempo wow you can still see that internally he's just absolutely waiting to burst at the seams but he he won't let himself do that and from everything i've read that was 
true to who Armstrong was. And I think he, he really achieves that incredibly here. And the, all the criticism about it being an unpatriotic movie don't really hold water with me because I think there's a tendency when making these type of movies, like a Clint Eastwood version of this is almost too patriotic. It's definitely too patriotic. It's only about America. It's not about, it's not about the actual event itself. It's not about the people who did it. It's only about America. And like, this is an American achievement, but it was also an achievement for like the species, you know, um, beyond the, the kind of construct of nationalities that we've all put on ourselves for, better and almost exclusively worse over the history of our species but like that's that is the thing here i think it's it's only crucial that chazelle recognizes because i i think i came out of that movie feeling a deeper connection to the idea of the moon landing than i had ever possibly considered before because it is generally, it is quite an American, you know, this is an American achievement. And it's an incredible, it's maybe the greatest American achievement of all. We peaked. Peaked too but early. Very, very crucially, Andrew, when you say we peaked, like, we as a species peaked. We're seeing a whole lot of that right now. Um, and we have for quite some time. But, you know, we as a species did peak. I, I do think Chazelle recognizes just the the deeply personal and the humanity of the story and just of the scale like i I genuinely remember coming out of a a theater at night having seen this in imax and particularly with the the imax sequence at the end on the moon and coming out of the theater and being like looking up at the sky and looking up at the moon and being like shit you know (laughs) like that is that is impressive that is that is the kind of thing that is just it's so difficult to wrap your brain around. You know, what is that like? What does that do to you? I, I spent days after I first saw this movie just thinking, like, what must that be like? What Like, we saw particularly the movie is focused on, you know, who Neil Armstrong is before that. But there is also probably a movie. I mean, he was so... The repression that is there in the film certainly plays true. And I think he's, you know, a very quiet figure throughout his life after that. But, like, what does it do to you? What does it do to you to be on the moon and then to come back? How can you ever live a normal life? How can you not just be, like, endlessly depressed? I I, I found the movie fascinating. It's really what I'm getting to this because I think maybe there's a relationship that is just, like, it's obvious. It's inherent to American people and a connection to the moon landing. It spoke to me as, oh, a person, you know, just the kind of the human element of the story in a very different way. Uh, I think that was something when the, the flag controversy came out, Chazelle was very much kind of open about. He wanted it to be a story of human achievement. He wasn't shying away from the fact it was an American achievement at all. The movie doesn't. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone could seriously level that criticism at it. It doesn't do that. But it also does highlight, you know, something about human spirit which is much more interesting than like the fake nation um, kind of, I don't know, labels and stigmas that we attach to things, the kind of the generalizations that come out of saying, oh, well, this is this is this versus this is that, you know, like the the whole American versus Russian element of the space race to begin with does kind of undersell the things that humanity was achieving. 
like as a species if someone on another planet was looking down on us and being like oh what are they up to it's like oh well we've got two groups of people who aren't working together and uh they're kind of getting this whole space travel thing down you know they're they're using very rudimentary tools it's not perfect but they're figuring something out there is something just deeply fascinating to that about what it said about you know the species that i think 50 plus years on we're kind of left here looking around and being like oh yeah cool uh what what has the last 50 years given us andrew that's that's a great question um Another thing that kind of branches off from what you were saying, that one thing that we get from Chazelle making this movie, rather than someone like Clint Eastwood, is, I mean, we're in the midst of 1960s counterculture, hippies, and and that sort of thing in America. Going to the moon wasn't a universally popular decision, Mm -hmm. and I don't think that I knew that. Obviously, I wasn't around at the time, but from learning about it in school, I don't think that I was aware that the financial, financial... implications of what they were doing was really something i knew a ton about so whether that's folks protesting um on the streets or even senators and congressmen talking to astronauts at fancy cocktail parties being like hey when are you guys gonna get to the moon <laughs> uh we're the ones writing these checks uh something that i think would have been shied away from in the wrong hands so i thought that was really interesting as well Going back. There's one one detail on that, just while you're on that subject, that I love in the movie is um, the scene where Leon Bridges, who I love, plays Gil Scott Heron, and he performs Whitey's on the Moon, which was a poem of Gil, Gil Scott Heron's at the time. And it is true, that whole sequence, which is kind of, I think we're, we get like a montage of like kind of mocked up newspaper things, and you're getting kind of, you're getting all kind of different elements of society, but it is pointing at just that idea, which, yeah, that's not going to be, not even just, I mean, it's easy, the Eastwood thing and Eastwood's, you know, once a, one-time attachment to this project is easy because, like, that gives us a very defined line and something we can easily imagine. What does the Clint Eastwood version of this movie look like? But I, I don't even think it has to be Eastwood. I think there's a lot of other directors who would just, not give that even the like the couple of minutes it gets just would would just brush past that and be like no we want to make something that's just purely kind of idolizing armstrong and kind of bowing down to this mission and the people involved yep well said i've got coming home on vinyl so maybe i'll uh i'll go listen to that a little bit later um to get my fill of leon bridges uh one of my favorite scenes in the movie to go back to what you were talking about when you're saying, you know, you come out of the theater and you look up is uh, when they're, I guess, having kind of a barbecue, drinking beers outside and they, they're passed around the telescope and they're just looking at the moon. And you know that that is if, if we're drawing a straight line between where they are now and X, X is the moon. <laughs> so we all know where they're eventually going to get to and just bring that all into focus and showing the difficulty and the unthinkable nature of that mission as an individual human being, everyone coming together to get two of you to the moon and one guy hovering around in orbit. But nevertheless, uh, it it really brings that home nicely. We talked about how in going through his entire filmography, seeing where he started and where he's gotten, like you said, in Guy and Madeline, we've got these hyper-focused, tight close-up shots of the actors. And, he does this again in first man in particular in armstrong's home 
we talked about in normal people or in the mood for love where you feel like you're a fly on the wall intruding on a moment the way he shoots these scenes almost feel like you're floating around the room or you're a home movie camcorder and that gives it a really personal feel and a very 1960s feel as well that i like the ghost from a ghost story yes i'm putting little notes in the wall in the armstrong household but feel like that's really effective from an emotional standpoint um because throughout this entire movie like we said it's about repression and grief but there's just a constant kind of sagging feeling in the pit of his stomach and janet armstrong's stomach and for some reason these little scenes in the home that showed them interact and trying to have like a normal family life despite everything going on i found really effective yeah, and Claire Foy is great in this movie, and it's it's really got a stacked supporting cast, who I think are all on their A game. I think the performances are great across the board. Um, all right, that really that brings us all the way through to the present. I mean, maybe we'll be back, God knows when. Uh, Babylon will be made, which is his next project, I guess tentatively. Who knows what anything is or when anything is anymore, but uh, it is a movie set in Hollywood of the 20s with currently at least Emma Stone attached to Star and Brad Pitt also attached to Star. That sounds very exciting. That sounds up Andrew and I's street. And if somehow we are still doing this podcast whenever that gets released, I guarantee you we'll be talking about it and probably Chazelle again. But in the meantime, final thoughts on Chazelle, Andrew. What what do you want to wrap up with? Um, like I said, he's in my top five favorite directors. There's something just about the types of films he makes, in particular Whiplash and La La Land, when it's completely his vision with Justin Hurwitz that I'm really drawn to. I I agree that First Man, it it, it might be his best movie. I think. Ask me on a different day. Yeah, I don't, I don't know answer. what his best is. I, I think there's three that are basically interchangeable. Yeah, that's that's how I feel as well, and it just depends on how I'm feeling for that day. But very excited to see what he does moving forward. I mean, he's such a young director. Uh, we won't get into that to make me and Adam feel like we haven't Please, accomplished anything in our right. lives. <laughs> uh, but other than that, yeah, love talking about Chazelle, and let's get through this mess so we can see what else he can do. Yeah, if only we had won Best Director Oscars before the pandemic hit, Andrew. Okay, on that note, we'll wrap it up with Chazelle. I would say go watch Damien Chazelle's movies. Don't watch The Eddie. You could literally watch... You could watch all four of his movies. I feel very confident you'd actually get all four in just before you'd finish The Eddie. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm doing the mental math right now, and I think you're right. Like, when I put it that way, Andrew... Do you think someone, if you've got eight hours to spend, they should watch the Eddie? Uh, I think they should just watch his movies. Yeah, even if you're watching his movies for the second time. Yeah, it's well worth it. We will be back next week, and we'll be going back to something we haven't done in a little while, and that is we'll continue our journey through the 21st century in movies. We'll talk about the films of the year 2003. I'm not going to tip you off on what we're going to talk about, because I haven't picked my movie yet. Uh, 2003 is one I find very difficult. Maybe we'll have more on that next week. But that is what will be coming up for us. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Captured on Cell. We're on Facebook too. If you like what you hear, make sure to go leave a review, leave a rating wherever you can, wherever you're listening. Until the next time, thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Watch Three Day Weekend on the ACC Network or watch ESPN.com. Produced or... I, I don't know, somehow created 
in part by uh, past guest Jordan Snyder. So, you know, if you have some time over the pandemic, do that. Thanks, Adam. I didn't know where that was going, but I fully endorse that now that I know Jordan's involved. Thanks all you for listening. Go watch Jordan's thing. 